Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the Association, sorry, the American Association of Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion and the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill, and I'm the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AABMC. On this episode of the podcast, today we're going to discuss that notable monograph that folks have been chattering about um, that AAVMC recently um, published on bias um, and the veterinary admissions process. Um, and as I mentioned, seen some chatter see some chatter on some boards, see some chatter here and there on the Twitters, on the Facebook, um, social media, um, about whether or not the work, whether or not the data really show, is it really bias or is it maybe something else? Um, so I thought, well, this is why we have this platform. Why don't we just have the authors on to, to chat about it here on the show? So I am delighted to welcome my friend and wonderful colleague, Dr. Jim Lloyd, primary author on that monograph, to talk about the paper, um, what we actually found, and what it means for the future of veterinary admissions. Hi, Jim. How are you? Doing well, Lisa. It's great to be here today. It is wonderful to be here with you. Um, so for folks that uh, don't know the illustrious Dr. <laughs> Deloy, why don't you tell the, tell the people about yourself? Well, I don't know where to start, you know. I, I guess I'll just, just a, a thumbnail. Uh, you know, I'm I'm now a, a, a has been Lisa. I'm uh, I've, I was uh, dean of the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine for six years uh, up until uh, about this time two years ago, and I've been doing some consulting ever since. And one of uh, the projects has been with the AVMC, obviously. Uh, prior to that, I spent my entire year at Michigan State University on the faculty and in, in, in administrate various administrative roles. Uh, and in uh, I guess. The, that's been short of it. In addition to being a veterinarian, I'm an economist. And so I uh, see the world a little differently at times and, uh, and through a little different lens. And that uh, kind of lends to, to some of the uh, analysis and things. that Wonderful. Welcome. And as uh, somebody who lives on the humanities side of the house, I, along with my uh, wonderful colleague, our colleague, Matt Saloy at AVMA, we like to remind folks that economists, they live on the social science side of the house. <laughs> so just saying, just saying, I love that you have a foot in both worlds. <laughs> so why don't we get to the money question? Like just off the, off the jump, is there evidence of bias nationally in veterinary admissions? Well, if you've looked at the monograph at all, you'll know <laughs> that the answer is yes. Uh, there's evidence of bias. The so bias how is that showing up? I'm, I'm no, how is that showing up? How do okay. we know? I'll, I'll say it first. I apologize to our listeners. My mic kind of splits in and out sometimes, and so we'll we'll do the best we can. And Lisa, you'll give me a heads up when it does. Um, so the the bias has shown up uh, on, along a number of different dimensions. Uh, the ones we think about first and and foremost probably 
uh, along the dimensions of race, ethnicity, and gender identity. Uh, and, and so there are advantages and disadvantages depending on what uh, dimension we look at and which uh, factor in the admissions or application process. But there's also evidence of bias along socioeconomic status. Uh, the, the factor that we used uh, was Pell Grant recipient as an indicator of wealth, family wealth. There's also evidence of bias along the first generation status. Uh, did your parents go uh, to college or not? Uh, and also, uh, surprisingly a bit, uh, some bias uh, along the dimension of, of where you grew up, what kind of a community you grew up in, whether it was rural or not, and what kind of community you'd like to work in, whether it's uh, rural or suburban. And so, you know, all those things are important for us to think about uh, as we think about the veterinary profession going forward and, and meeting the needs of society and, and representing the society. Yeah. So so clearly something is happening. Right. And it's happening and it's affecting disproportionately affecting some populations and not others. Um, but, you know, for a number, you know, some of the chatter that I've heard is, well, admissions committees don't always know that, you know, someone is first gen or that they're, you know, a Pell Grant recipient or, you know, whatever. Um, so so, you know, let's kind of go back a bit. Where are those um, opportunities to kind of introduce bias kind of upstream into the process? Well, there's, there's opportunities for bias all the way along, <laughs> all, all the way from, from when you define the uh, admissions requirements, the pre-vet requirements. What that does, uh, it can do is, is result in a bias in who shows up, uh, who yeah. actually applies, all right? And then we get into the process of how difficult is for particular groups uh, to, to achieve those requirements, to meet those requirements, to check those boxes. Some groups uh, have an easier time than others. It doesn't turn out to be a, a level playing field. And then, uh, of course, in the admissions and the selection process itself, and both the criteria used for selection and the process. And, and Lisa, I, I don't for a second want to suggest that any of this bias is intentional. It's right. not. We've designed admissions or application processes with bias in mind that we, that we want to, to favor or disadvantage different groups. But it's, it's, it, it is the fact that it's uh, unintentional and, and, it, and it's unintended uh, that, that, that makes it important for us to, to highlight that through the, these types of analyses and, and point out where some of those constraints are, where some of the barriers are that we didn't anticipate. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, one of the things I know um, a lot of folks that have heard me uh, uh, over the last couple of years have really been kind of banging <laughs> my little <laughs> like tinkling triangle um, saying, you know, hey, we need to really think about what is it that we expect and want and what do we mean, um, you know, when we ask for, um, you know, veterinary experience. Right. Folks that know me know that that's like something that that gets my dander up a bit. Like, what is it? You know, what are students um, or applicants, prospective applicants supposed to be getting from those experiences? Um, you know, do they have does everybody really have access to be able to get that kind of experience? Um, and, um, you know, what role does it really play? A lot of times we hear, well, we want to them to know what they're getting into. And I'm like that is cool, 
I'm gonna need a learning objective, right? And so I'm gonna need something a little bit more concrete. What exactly does that mean? But what we found in the data is that that particular requirement kind of puts us on a slippery slope. So, so Lisa, if we think about the three experiences, uh, right. the veterinary experience, the animal experience, and the research experience, um, we didn't find any relationship between the number of hours of veterinary experience or animal experience and the likelihood of receiving an offer admission. There was a relationship uh, between research hours and the likelihood of admission. Uh, the more research hours, the more likely to get an offer of admission. Um, but what we did also find was that some groups had greater difficulty in actually achieving those hours of experience uh, and, and were, were disadvantaged in that regard. And whether or not uh, the, 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 the data tell us that more was better, gave you a better chance, it just kind of comes into the back of your mind that, you know what, the more I get, the better I'm going to do, the more prepared I'm going to be. The other thing that's critical about these uh, experience hours is there were some questions about who, and especially in the veterinary experience, who was your mentor and what was the quality of your experience? And we also found uh, significant differences in uh, who mentored uh, the particular candidates, uh, again, by, by the group yeah. that they were in, and how they evaluated the quality of that experience. And so it isn't, again, it isn't the same for everybody. Yeah, it's not the same. And so so with that, the mentoring and, and also kind of who spent the more time with whom in, you know, the clinic setting, we certainly found some differences along gender. Um, and we also, you know, one of the things that I thought was really interesting is that we don't really talk about the role that um, veterinary technicians and certified and registered veterinary technicians play in you know mentoring, coaching, and and having students shadow them, and yet you know when we talk about like letters of recommendation, those aren't the folks that we're looking for the letters from, right? But we also know that not all of the the prospective applicants are spending most of their time with veterinarians; they're spending them with those wonderful techs. Yeah, yeah, and again, that was a, a bit of a surprise as we looked at the data, but you're absolutely right. And 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 not to diminish the quality of the experience of the veterinary technician, but it it does speak for the fact that it's not uh, it, the, the the experience the 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 opportunity isn't the same for everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's really get into who who was really impacted, right? Who was really, you know, what does the data? show, because I know that there are lots of folks who love data like we do. And then there are lots of folks that are like, well, back in my day, <laughs> X, Y, and Z was true. And that is absolutely, we we validate the lived experience <laughs> of individuals. <laughs> However, <laughs> like, you know, brass tags, who's, who's kind of, you know, really um, maybe potentially getting the short end here? Uh, I, I can I'd flip it either way, the short end or the long end. The, 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 the groups that actually have the advantage that, that benefit from are white students, mm -hmm. males, uh, they're uh, from wealthy backgrounds, non-Pell non recipients, we'll say. Uh, they're from suburban backgrounds, okay? And they aren't, as a rule, first-generation college students. Mm -hmm. uh, 
they, they, their, their parents went to college. So the flip of that is the disadvantaged groups in general, the broad group is the underrepresented groups in, in veterinary medicine, uh, those who are not white, uh, the, the, the females uh, identify as females in the group, uh, those who were Pell Grant recipients, those who were first generation college students, and those who mainly grew up or aspired to practice in rural backgrounds. Uh, so uh, th those are the ones that were most commonly found to be disadvantaged in some dimension as we went through. Yeah, yeah. And so, so yeah, I mean, it, it, there are different pieces for different <laughs> different groups, yeah. right? So, so can we kind of um, go into, um, you know, maybe take a deep dive into one of those areas, right? Maybe like that mentorship um, piece. So, so what did you find? Well, I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly the <laughs> results there, Lisa. But the, for those groups that were disadvantaged, I can't uh, script out exactly. Yeah is which, okay? But I, I do uh, know that uh, the, the, the underrepresented students in, in, in veterinary medicine, the URVM students, uh, were less likely uh, as a group to spend the time with the veterinarian and, and as opposed to a, a, a technician in the practice. And they were more likely uh, to, to and they, they didn't rate the, the experience quite as high as quite as well. They, they all valued the experience very highly, uh, which is important. Uh, everybody thought it was a valuable experience, uh, but they didn't, they didn't rate the quality of the experience as high as the white students yeah. uh, or, or um, I'm, I'm the, the, the male students. The male students, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, it's it, it, one of the criticisms um, of of the monograph has been, well, is this is this really bias? Is it really? You know, and I think that our, our response really has has been, well, look at all of this data in total and give us an explanation for how it wouldn't be. <laughs> Right. Like, so, I mean, it's just so many potential layers. Well, it is. And, and again, my my inability to recall, we did uh, one of the criticisms or, or suggestion. Well, you did so many tests. Aren't you going to get some false uh, false? Spot? Well, absolutely. We will. But just the evidence in the broad uh, sense was so overwhelming that there just are so many indicators of bias in the analysis. And again, on the group, on the particular factor we looked at. And, and I think the other thing that, that helps with the credibility is a very broad-based study. This is across all those, the veterinary schools uh, that, that use the VimCAS application service. Uh, and so it, it, from that standpoint, it, it is, is robust as well, I, I'd say. And, and you know, uh, again, not intentional, not designed to be this way, but certainly the numbers don't lie. And, and there's just enough, again, if you look at the paper, you'll see they're just enough of these indicators. It pops up here, it pops up there. And uh, it just, at the end of the day, you look at the overwhelming uh, 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 body of evidence and it's, it's pretty clear. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the other questions that I, I um, had received uh, was, well, how how can men be advantaged? <laughs> right. Um, when they make up such a small percentage of 
Um, the applicant pool this year, um, they only make up about 12% of the pool. You know, how, how is it possible? Because their numbers are just so small. And I'm like, and yet they still make up 18% of our enrollment, which, you know, you, you actually don't have to pull out SPSS or Minitab or yeah. R <laughs> to see that there's an advantage there, right? Um, but, you know, but but that is a part of, um, you know, the reality that, that we've been, that, that there are now some concrete things that we can kind of point to to show you know, here's kind of what's happening. I think it's really important to just, again, state, it's not, we we don't believe anyone is kind of setting out to say, really want to keep folks out, right? Um, I, I don't think that that's, that's certainly not what we're saying. And we also know from some of your previous work, Jim, that, that our applicant pool is pretty deep and folks really kind of worry about the quality of the pool, but it's it's a deep pool. It, it is a deep pool, but I'm glad you brought that up because there was another piece I was thinking that I want to go back and reemphasize. Uh, we did all these statistical tests, and again, we did lots of them. And, and so you, you think about what does that mean statistically? Well, some of them, uh, a lot of them, in, in fact, if we look at African-Americans as a group, uh, there were a lot of tests that we did where there did not where there was not any significant difference. Well, uh, in a sense, that's good news uh, on, on a surface, but there's so few African-American candidates in the pool uh, that statistically we can say that, you know what, the numbers are so small that if, in fact, there was a greater representation, uh, the, the trends that we see, it, it ends up having a the low numbers, a high variance. We'll just say that. And so uh, and so those would be the tests that if I was going to question. So, again, in the broader in the broader brush. Uh, the, the, the bias is real, but the other thing that we're worried about is what impact uh, does the application process, the application requirements, the admissions process, what impact is it having directly or indirectly on who shows up, who actually decides to, to engage in the application process? In fact, some of that bias in the selection uh, process that we're seeing might indirectly be resulting in the low representation in the yeah, yeah. So, so really, what does it mean um, for the pool when we know that we've got an amazing uh, amount of talent in our pool? Um, you know, the we tell people all the time, like the difference between you know the number one ranked candidate and the number you know three thousand ranked candidate, oftentimes is really just decimals, right? <laughs> right. Well, and, and you know, it, it, it's a challenge. As, as Dean, I used to answer, parent, try to answer parents' uh, questions that will respond to their inquiries by by saying, you know what, we just don't have enough seats for all the good candidates. And and the second part, I'll admit readily, as a dean, as a former associate dean, now as an analyst, you know, there has never been a perfect admissions process design. Uh, we do the best that we can. Uh, but, but you know, I, it, it is reassuring, Lisa, when we look at the quality of the pool uh, to know that it is deep uh, and that we do have quality applicants there. So, um, but, but the, again, the, 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 as we work, uh, we continue to work uh, to improve the process and, and to identify and, 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 and when appropriate to make changes to, to, to eliminate the bias. 
Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to take the liberty of having a brief commercial break and promoting the AAVMC Community Reads, <laughs> um, which uh, we launched just a few weeks ago. We are currently reading The Merit Myth, How Our Colleges Favor the Rich and Divide America by Anthony uh, Carnival, uh, Jeff Stroll, and Peter Schmidt. Really, really great book on kind of just understanding um merit as a um, construct, but also um, how merit um, and, and um, ideas about merit have frankly perverted admissions um, in higher ed in general. Um, and, uh, you know, pro tip, the word merit actually um, earlier in the, the last last century, around the, I don't know, 40s or 50s or so, merit actually had been used as a pejorative, like it was really not, um, it, you know, it was used to kind of make fun of this artifice that was emerging of, we want this kind of candidate. And so, you know, the whole kind of undergirding around merit was about, frankly, keeping people out rather than letting people in. So if you want to join us in AABMC Reads, you can come visit our website um, and, and sign up. We uh, will be starting online discussions soon. So bringing it back, um, what, you know, what are some things that, you know, we don't make a lot of recommendations in the monograph, but, you know, what are some of the things that, that we, you know, can think about for admissions committees and kind of, you know, encourage well, first, I'm going to roll back to your commercial and see if on the, on the bookshelf on my over my shoulder, you'll see that book there, and it's an outstanding read. So it's so germane to this very conversation. But uh, so back to your question, what, what can we recommend? What can veterinary schools do? You know, first thing, I mentioned this is a broad-based study. It was a broad-based study. It was across all schools. And so it was a very, it, that makes it a robust study, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, but it also doesn't say a lot uh, about any specific program. So, you know what, uh, you just got to get the data, dig in and look at, gee, what's going on in our own program? What are the outcomes we're achieving? And then uh, to, along the way to think about what is it that we're uh, requiring uh, for a pre-vet requirement, both in the terms of, of, of terms of courses, because some courses are not always readily available. Some course requirements can be actually barriers, constraints. Uh, how many hours do we need? How many hours of what do we need? Those All those kind of questions. Okay, And then to look at the selection process and the criteria used in the selection process. Everything we can do uh, to, to remove any, any sort of unforeseen barriers there. Uh, the other thing that we do mention in the paper is, is that uh, I highly recommend admission committees and staff, I'll say, uh, to, to do uh, regular training and implicit bias, uh, you know, and, and to do as much of their own work uh, as they can. This is something that, and if you don't keep the edges fresh, I'll say as a, as a, as a former clinician, if you don't keep the edges fresh, uh, you know the healing doesn't happen very well. And so we don't keep current on it and we don't keep our, our thinking and our ideas, our ideas current. So uh, the implicit bias training and just to continue to do it uh, at every, every, every possible time. So. Yeah. 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 I can't, um, stress that enough. It's really, really important, um, to really kind of think about, about bias and understanding again, it's not malicious, um, but 
you know, um, unconscious bias, I tell people all the time, it is just a, a, a kind of unfortunate potential byproduct of the brain just really doing its job really efficiently, right? And so um, some things kind of get jumbled <laughs> along the way um, and, and then we act on that. And so, um, you know, so what do we say then to, you know, some folks that are really kind of like, I, yeah, I just don't really buy all <laughs> this, like, you know, this isn't a big problem. This isn't a real problem. Um, you know, uh, certainly, you know, sometimes those folks are also like this DNI thing, eh. but, but really kind of how do we kind of talk about this in a really meaningful way? Well, I'll, 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 you know, I, I don't know exactly how to answer that. I guess I, I'll roll back and say, you know, if if our goal is to uh, work toward enhancing diversity in veterinary medicine, then then we've got to have these conversations. We've got to do these analyses. We've got to talk about it. Um, and and the, and the question is, why do we need to do that? Uh, the, the question to me is, is clear. You know, you, you ask a question about who's impacted in the general sense, in the specific sense, we talked about various groups, but really the students that are impacted by this are not only the students uh, who don't get accepted, but also the students who do get accepted. Mm -hmm. The learning process is not nearly as rich uh, in, in a homogeneous environment as it is when we've got diversity of thought, diversity of approaches, diversity, diversity of lived and life experiences, diversity of questions in the, in the classroom, diversity of context uh, for, for answering the questions and, and solving the animal health challenges that we're facing. So, so really that's what we, we work toward, a better learning experience at, in the college level. And then ultimately we're better as a profession uh, when we're more diverse. We've got better problem solvers. We, got, we have more approaches to the same problems and, and we all know that, that that makes a big difference. At the end of the day, it's the animals, the animal owners, and, and in, in a broad sense, the society we seek to serve. I'll say we seek to serve. We do serve society. I believe veterinary medicine does a good job, but we can do better. And, and if we can't uh, adequately represent the experience and, and the lives and the perspectives of uh, the society that we seek to serve, uh, how can we adequately anticipate their needs or, or meet their needs? And so just say that that's that, that's the bottom line, Lisa. We, we, that's why we need to strive for this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think that I, I wholeheartedly agree. And you know, a lot of times folks are like, "Oh, but the animals, especially in small animal practice, right?" Or or you know, even kind of um, some farming practices. But folks are like, "Ah, the animals don't care." And I I'm always quick to remind folks that when Barkley, my wonderful dog, is able <laughs> to yeah. transport himself. <laughs> to shout out at Delray Animal Hospital with his own debit card, then, you know, have at it. <laughs> well, if we think about it uh, as well, Lisa, some animals, uh, the companion animals especially, don't get a chance to see a veterinarian because there's not a veterinarian who looks like me, who literally or figuratively speaks my language, or maybe understands my socioeconomic context, uh, whether it's a rural environment and the challenges and, and different uh, perspectives we face there, or whether it's it's one where I just don't have the wealth, the means of the family household income uh, to to do what you know what what I might recommend uh, from my my life view, uh, and so we need to have a, a different approach so that those animals can get the best care uh, possible. And so again, without having that diversity of thought and diversity of experience uh, in 
the applicant pool in the classroom and ultimately in the profession. We just we just aren't going to be able to meet the needs as well as we could. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, last question, what do you hope comes out of this and and uh, what do you think we should work on next? <laughs> well, first of all, I'd, I'd like people to understand that and, and, to, and to really uh, respect the fact that the admissions process is is a complex, multifactorial process, right? It, it, it isn't an easy thing to do. There again, as I said before, there's never been a perfect admissions process, and then it never will be. Uh, we're all doing the best we can, and we're and and the other thing we'd like people to know is that by doing this deep dive, uh, AAVMC is leading the way in saying that we want to do better. We want to, to look at what we're doing. We want to be introspective. We want to identify uh, the things we're doing well, uh, save those, but also identify the opportunities for improvement and then where appropriate build processes around and then monitor the outcome of those processes. Don't just flip the switch and go on about business and say, okay, we, we fixed that one. We'll go on to something else. But to monitor the outcomes of that and, and, and to walk through the other thing I guess I would like is it is that the, the, the outcome of this research to send a signal not only to uh, the profession about how important this is to us as educators uh, and to educators, how important this is or should be to us, but also to prospective applicants. Uh, those who have looked at some of the barriers, whether they're real or perceived, or, or looked at some of the, the, uh, the, the requirements, looked at some of the, and, and a little, you know what, uh, we're on it. Uh, we're working on it and, and, and don't turn away from us for that. Veterinary medicine is such a rewarding career and there can be so impactful uh, on people's lives, on animals' lives, uh, and, and just, uh, just, just a, great, uh, a great way to spend your life. I'll just say that. Yeah, gets yeah. A, a, little, a little corny at that point, but seriously, don't back away. Don't turn away from us based on that. We're working on it. Uh, give it a shot and, 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 and by the time you come through this process, we're going to have it fixed. Yeah. Um, so we do have actually have a, a question. Um, and that question is, did you see any differences with applicants who did core requirements at community college versus four-year uh, institution or online? And uh, we don't, dis- I can say that we don't distinguish in the survey about online or in-person. So... But there was a difference, uh, you know, even though it was slight and we use the words in, in you know, uh, it, it's the old statistical thing. Is it 0.05 or is it 0.1? You know, I, I think a 10 percent chance is, is, is anyhow, that it's my life. So we report those, identify them as trends or tendencies rather than significant differences. But uh, for the community college uh, attendees, yes, if you attended a community college, it's uh, it has an impact in in. And, and how that manifests itself, whether it's just a perception or what, again, it's hard to say because of the, the process, but, but absolutely, the, there's, a, there's an impact of community college. I mean, I think it's important to note that, you know, roughly about half of, of our applicants have some community college um, credits. And, you know, on average, the amount for those folks who do take community college credits they typically take about a whole year's worth, right? About about thirty or so credits, um, and so 
you know, um, a lot of them are taking them certainly for cost and accessibility um, uh, to kind of keep costs down. But there's also a really amazing population. I think it's like about 20% of that population that also take them. They're starting those community college courses in, as dual enrollees, right, in high school. And so, um so it's not just, uh, you know, just costs or or those kinds of things, but folks are really kind of, um, you know, these are these are really um, amazing applicants um, who are looking for those challenges and they're looking for them early, um, even in high school, um, to take those community college courses. And so, you know, I think that that from my perspective, then when they get to you know the four year institution, whether they transferred or not, they can go right into those core requirements. But they've also made space for some of those other courses that um, folks like me, they are really, really important, like maybe more community and more communications courses, some, you know, courses in some of those social sciences that can kind of help um, uh, uh, with the the just content um, and curriculum exposure around issues related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so, you know, kind of just understanding um, socioeconomics, basic basic socioeconomics, right? Um, and, and really kind of understanding kind of what's happening around them so that they can kind of have a bit of, um, you know, context um, for the future and kind of where they do their work and how they do their work. So um, can you talk a little bit though, um, you know, I do want to double back, um, even though it sounded like we were going to wrap up, but I'm not going to let you off the hook just yet. So can we talk about what's, um, what, you found with rural applicants? Because I think that that's um, certainly an area that a lot of folks um, talk about. We need more rural people that want to go into rural areas, um, which those applicants do say that they, they're more likely to say that they want to go into rural practice um, and, and there's a need for that. But we also found that, that in some areas they may be disadvantaged um, in the process. You know, it, it can uh, manifest itself in a number of ways. Uh, and, and whether it's uh, just, you know, so, so just the fact that you lived in a rural community, uh, grew up in a rural or want to practice is probably, you know, not to drive or it, it probably has manifested itself through one of a number of different routes. Maybe uh, in a rural community, you're more likely to be a first generation college student. Uh, maybe you're more likely to be a Pell Grant recipient. Uh, one of the most, as you were talking about the, the high school students taking uh, uh, co uh, community college credits, one that, that I know happens is, is that we found that students who had access to or who took advanced placement AP courses in high school were more likely to get uh, to, to receive at least one offer of admission. Well, I, I know by from a fact that the, the, these uh, that not all rural high schools have AP classes available. Uh, and so it, it's a combination of those factors. Does it mean that that individual is going to be any less likely to be successful as a veterinarian? Uh, the answer is no. Uh, but somehow that that AP thing has worked through uh, and or some of the other factors have, have snuck in. Uh, and you know, how does socioeconomics have an impact? You know, and so it, 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 to the extent that does many schools have up until now and, and some still do use uh, uh, standardized testing scores part of the admissions process. 
uh, the GRE specifically? Well, if you uh, have the money to take uh, a, a GRE prep course, it's clear and it's, it's well documented in the literature that you're going to do better on the GRE, which in, in a sense, if that's uh, part of the uh, admissions process and the, the selection criteria is how well you did on those tests. Well, if you've got more money and can take those uh, prep courses, uh, one or two or however many of them, uh, th th and you're going to do better. So again, some of those, it, it, it is a complex process. And so it just really, uh, again, signals that we need to take a step back. How much of this is 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 real? How much do, do we really need to have? How much do we rely on these various indicators? And look at the data to see how much are those uh, those indicators uh, revealing or, or ending up in, in a bias in the selection process. Yes, yes. And uh, again, shameless commercial plug. There's a whole chapter <laughs> just devoted to standardized testing um, and the rise of standardized testing, which, you know, again, um, uh, uh, plot spoiler, uh, standardized tests were developed to keep people out rather than to let people in. Um, I do want to acknowledge that there was a, a, a uh, question in the chat. I have answered it um, to build on the question, what if all prereqs were taken at a community college? Does that make a difference? We don't ask the question in a way that really allows us to, um, to uh, get at that. Um, so, we, so we really can't, yeah, we just can't answer that. Um, but it does appear that many uh, of our applicants are taking um, uh, more gen ed classes, um, again, because of when they choose to take them, why they're taking them, those kinds of things really point to more getting out, um, getting those general education courses, air quote, out of the way, which again, I'm a big fan of the liberal. <laughs> general education, liberal arts um, uh, curricula. So I hate saying getting them out of the way, but I can acknowledge that in pre-professional curricula, a lot of folks, um, you know, kind of skew that way. And so, um, but we don't, we don't really um, ask the question in such a way that allows us to get at that. So any uh, parting words um, and uh, thoughts of, uh, you know, offers of wisdom? Well, you know, we didn't in this study uh, look at the GRE specifically. That's a whole nother podcast, perhaps, but it's a whole nother topic. And there is uh, uh, some very good material in the book you're talking about about that. We, we also have a, a kind of an essay that, uh, that uh, I wrote as part of my, my work with the AVMC that's available as well that, that talks about the GRE. Uh, so that's another one that, that, uh, that, that we could, we could uh, again, spend a lot of time. But just in general, again, I just go back to the fact that this is, 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 is not intended to call people out for an intentional bias process. It, it just says, you know what, we need to always, and probably in everything we do, uh, look at the outcomes uh, because we get unintended out outcomes, unintentional outcomes. And, and, and when we do, we need to kind of loop back, see what it is. Uh, that, that's leading to that outcome and, and then see what we can do to improve it. There, there's no question that we, we have to, as a, as a veterinary medical profession, if we're going to remain relevant, if we're going to continue uh, to grow with an increasingly diverse society, we've got to diversify our profession. And this is a key part of it. We, and and the, the admissions process, applications and admissions, that's the front door to veterinary medicine. And so uh, it, 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 start, it all starts right here. So uh, it, it's vital that we get after it. 
Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much, Jim. Uh, the last question is here is, is <laughs> from uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Hilda Mejia Brew um, asking, you know, what is the future study? Or, you know, what are we going to be looking at next? I can tell you what I am certainly interested in. And, and um, you know, certainly the, the essay um, piece that, that Jim will have um, related to the GRE. But, but I'm also really interested in, in kind of looking at um, uh, debt and really kind of understanding, um, you know, uh, applicants' relationship with um, undergraduate debt as they're kind of coming to the door and how does that shape um, the places that they apply, where they apply, how they make those decisions. We do know that it does impact, um, you know, uh, where they apply. Um, it impacts um, offer, whether or not they accept an offer. Um, you know, some of the, the early research years, a few years ago certainly shows that, you know, the world is oh, your oyster at the at the time of application, right? Yes, um, folks are thinking about it. They are trying to make good decisions, but you know they're kind of right now. I think that the average number of of um, schools that folks are applying to is about four or five, um, and folks are trying to look strategically and and making those decisions. But we also know that um, over, well over half of our applicants do not have debt at the time of making application. This year, I think it was about 58%. Um, and um, they report that that is largely because of family support. Now, that doesn't mean that their parents are rolling in it. <laughs> Um, it certainly may mean, and I certainly know just, again, anecdotally, that a lot of parents are shouldering that debt um, themselves in order to, um, you know, kind of help students remain debt-free. And if they were kind of like my parents, they were like, we will assist you in undergrad. All the rest of that stuff beyond that, you're on your, <laughs> you're on your own. Um, but we also know that about 20% of, um, of our graduates um, do not have debt. And, um, you know, I think that that um, there's hopefully some lessons to be learned there about how they're doing that, um, but also recognizing that some of the populations that we mentioned today um, um, are not graduating undergrad without debt. They are graduating with, um, you know, roughly thirty dollars to $35,000 worth of debt, sometimes more. There are some um, applicants who have gone to, you know, amazing, yet very costly <laughs> undergraduate institutions and are coming in, um, you know, with, with a lot of debt. And so, at least for me, I'm, I'm interested in, in looking at that because I think that there is also this thread um, um, for folks that are, are, that do care about marginalized and underrepresented populations saying, is this really, you know, is what are the ethics around recruiting into a you know a profession that graduates with so much debt, um, and I, and I think that that that's an important question, but I think that it's also important to recognize that a lot of times those populations have a very different relationship with debt. Those of us with um, with some resources are way more afraid of losing those resources <laughs> than folks who with limited resources are about losing more resources, right? And so, um, so, so for me anyway, that's, that's something that I'm, that I'm interested in and certainly looking at anything that you wanna look at, Jim? 
No, I was going to say we did find some some very preliminary results in this study that we report in the paper. About, I mean, it, it kind of rolls into that whole socioeconomic status thing, but, but the relationship between debt and and their, both their confidence in in, in their application and uh, in their their uh, probability likelihood of of receiving an admissions offer. And so, I think there is much more to unpack there. They said it really is important whether that. It is an effect through, you know, if, if I'm carrying a, serious, a certain amount of debt, I'm less likely to apply to more schools. I think that, uh, and, and we found that the more schools you apply to, the more likely you are to get an offer, which only makes sense. So, I mean, as we, uh, as, as we dig into that, I think that that makes sense. All right. And so I think that we'll put a pin in it there. Um, so this has been another episode of AVMC's Diversity, Matter, uh, Diversity and Inclusion on Air. To my guest, Jim Floyd, thank you so much for joining me. Um, for our viewers and listeners, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and like us on Facebook. Shout out to the Apple podcast folks. Um, I'm hoping to get the show back up on that platform soon. So stay tuned. Um, until then, thanks for joining us and thanks for listening. Thank you.